Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. One of the main things we've learned from season one of Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy is the vastly different way Olympic and Paralympic sport is governed in the UK. Some so-called national governing bodies are in charge of the entire sport from grassroots upwards. Others just look after the elite athletes. So who, though, is ultimately responsible for getting more people moving, more active and more healthy? I'm John. And I'm Michael, and we're in the centre of London at the offices of Sport England. They are the organisation responsible for making participation in sport a habit for life. And the man we're going to meet was also partly behind the transformation of Paralympic sport in Great Britain. Hello, I'm Tim Hollingsworth. I'm the Chief Executive of Sport England, and I'm delighted to be with John and Michael today. So, Tim, Sport England, it's all about moving rather than medals. Is that it, fair? It's absolutely not about uh, medals, although we're very proudly part of a sporting ecosystem where that matters very much indeed. But no, our focus absolutely is on making the nation more active and seeing how sport and physical activity can be central to people's lives in a way not only that can uh, improve their physical well-being, uh, but also impact positively on their lives in lots of other ways as well. So we're absolutely about that sense of uh, where people find activity as part of their everyday lives. And as Michael mentioned, you were at ParaGB and UK yep. Sport before that. Yes, I'm so, doing the rounds. <laughs> but yeah. you've been at Sport England for, for a couple of years. How, Not, how, no, 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 just over a year. Just over a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But long time, enough. Time flies. How much different is it? not having those targets, or you do have targets, but not the targets that you were working to, to before. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways in which the role, because when you're at a chief executive level, the overlaps are obvious in terms of leadership, but the scale of the task and the focus of the task is very different, um, which is one of the, after seven years at the British Paralympic Association, four games, two winter, two summer, uh, that made it a right time for, for me to move on. I think particularly in this year, so we've just ticked over into 2020, I know that my former colleagues and all the athletes and all those working across both Olympic and Paralympic sport have sort of woken up on January the 1st with a different sense. You do. 
because the combination of games year, games year does two things. Uh, it absolutely gives you that sense of momentum into what you've been planning for and working towards. But you also realize that you are in a position where actually a lot of the work that you have done is going to come to fruition. And therefore, there's that challenge of making sure that, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it works out. Um, by contrast, our job here is more of a longer-term strategic ambition to transform how we as a society engage in sport and being more physically active. It doesn't mean that there aren't, as you say, targets. It doesn't mean that there aren't short-term ambitions. And it certainly doesn't mean that there isn't a relentless pursuit of what we're trying to achieve. But we don't have that same... Uh, sort of relentless focus on a on. I mean, it used to feel in some ways uh, around the medals certainly that within BPA it was it was four years preparing for four weeks. Do you miss it though? As you say, it's just clicked. Well, into I'm a- I'm hoping to go, so <laughs> we'll we'll see we'll see about that uh, because I genuinely do. I still have a role actually within the International Paralympic Committee. I've retained a place on their Paralympic Games Committee, which which is uh, the uh, subgroup that uh, advises the IPC on the makeup of the game schedule, summer and winter. So it's actually quite relevant to go with that in mind. Um, I would miss it were this job not so uh, brilliant. Um, because it was an amazing environment to be in. I was fiercely proud being part of the Paralympic movement. I was fiercely proud of having joined it before London and seen, you know, uh, the way that it developed and continued to develop uh, through to where we are now. Um, But no, I think in terms of my own sense of uh, what I can do, what my ambitions are, how I think I can make a difference, I hope, but also, uh, you know, uh, work as hard as I can uh, within sport this is a great new challenge and so I'm not missing it in that respect and also my great colleagues are, are cracking on without me frankly so I'm sure we'll come back to, to talking about London 2012 and, and your previous roles but let's talk about Sport England you said you've been in post for just over a just year just over a year November 2018 so have you been implementing someone else's strategy have you been able to put your own grubby fingerprints across the Sport England message at the moment I, I think there's been some of that uh on both sides, actually. I mean, without question. I mean, there was a big sea change in strategic direction uh, Well, before I arrived. I'm, uh, I hope that most of your listeners will know that the government uh, changed uh, course quite considerably around its, its view of what sport should achieve for society. And back in 2015-16, published the new strategy for sport. And what that did critically, and I really applauded this at the time, was link their view of what uh, investment in sport uh, was to social outcomes and particularly to five outcomes and recognizing that actually sports power was its ability to impact positively on people's lives through their sense of physical and mental well-being their own sense of personal confidence and agency and what they got from from being active and critically that sense of community development and social cohesion alongside ultimately the economic benefits that were provided so having had that strategic change where it wasn't just about how many people are participating but it was about what impact it's that having and how is it benefiting people's lives uh sports england in turn took quite a radical uh shift in in approach uh with uh, towards an active nation which is the strategy that's currently in its final year of development so um in coming in on the one part michael yes there was a uh continuation of that uh, a lot of the very good work that had gone into that. And in fact, in a very good way, because I think in the two or three years before I joined, 
Sport England was a bit finding its way. So one of my jobs was to come in and, and look at across a lot of what we'd called our sort of test and learn approach to what might work in that environment and start to make some clearer decisions about what we had learned and what we could do more of. I think certainly also understanding the changing behaviour that that requires of Sport England. And we can come on to that maybe, but a big part of what I've learned in the last year and want to take forward is that it's much about how we operate rather than what we do that can make a difference. Um, but I am in the middle of, with my colleagues, a significant look at refreshing that strategy. Uh, technically, it comes to an end in March 21, but it's more about we've, we've spent five years really getting under the skin of what transformational change can, can be in terms of sport and physical activity. And we want to put a new strategy together that takes all that and really moves it forward. So where do you get your money from and how do you spend it? What are you actually doing? Well, there's one difference to the BPA in that I spent most of my time at the BPA always conscious of the need to, to raise funds. We're a, we're a, a government uh, uh, sports council. We're an arm's length body of government uh, through the DCMS and we're a lottery distributor. So we get our money as a combination of both the national lottery uh, and government exchequer funding. Um, it's rounded around, it's about three hundred million pounds a year. So it's quite of, a significant it's a budget. Significant sum, one point two billion over the over the four year cycle. It's a lot of money, uh, and that is about two thirds national lottery um, and one third exchequer. And there's some differentiation between what we can use exchequer for, what we can use lottery for, but fundamentally, it's there to resource the system, and that is absolutely uh, uh, enabling us to think very hard not only about where we should be um, uh, resourcing and, and to what extent, but also how much we can plan in the future because clearly both exchequer and to a degree lottery money are, are um, you know, at risk. You know, lottery sales need to be maintained and I know in your world you'll speak a lot about that at the elite end and the, the impact that the lottery's had. Uh, and of course we're coming up to a spending review this year that will determine exchequer. But yeah, we get about £300 million a year uh, which means that we're an investor, we're a grant giver. So Sport England isn't in the market to raise resources. We can look and are looking, I think, at really exciting, innovative ways to think about how additional resources can be brought into the system. Uh, if you look at ways that that could happen, whether that's so social funding, so organisations who are willing to invest in programmes because they can see the social return. Uh, but on the whole, it's public money being invested for common good. And in this kind of era where we've gone through immense political upheaval over the last yes. two, three, four years, have you sensed that there's still an appetite in Downing Street, in Whitehall, to keep investing in sport? It's still important? It's still on the agenda? Yeah, I mean, this comes with a massive health warning and that, you know, we, we don't know what, what's coming down the track. But yes, um, and there's two reasons for that. I think one, I hope, because we have a Sport England and the other uh, sports councils and certainly at the Elite End UK Sport have demonstrated the impact positively to government of all, you know, and to p political parties of all complexions, uh, that they have seen that the existing resource and the, and the existing investment uh, has started to impact positively and make a difference against the strategy. So I think and hope that we've got some credibility around our existing work. But I think more excitingly, I think the way that the, uh, government policy is developing uh, makes the case for it to be potentially greater investment. And in, just to give a couple of examples there, you can look at the health agenda and you can look at the way that actually uh, there, there is a starting to be a groundswell now 
of realisation that in the prevention rather than cure agenda, being physically active can not only impact positively on people's uh, health and well-being, but can have a significant impact on mental health, for example, as well. So uh, where this was not on the agenda five years ago, there's quite a lot of discussion now within the health sector about what's known as social prescribing, where a GP or a primary healthcare professional will not just necessarily write out a form for a drug, but will actually socially prescribe and say, why don't you actually think about, you know, some activity in your life to overcome, you know, either an ailment or or, or a condition. Uh, and sport can be a huge part of that social prescribing mix, you know, whether it's anything from going to walk for, to joining a club to, to playing in a team, you know, can provide for both uh, well-being and, uh, and also physical health. So there's one example of how the agenda is emerging. But probably the more exciting one is a lot of what we're learning is the effectiveness of a, of a place-based strategy, of things working, certainly at community level, much, much better when you think about that local environment and the place in which things are happening. And we'll have all seen how the government is moving towards that, not least with its recognition that it needs to impact positively on communities and towns and places that has felt maybe a bit left behind by, uh, by the last decade or so. So we have got real opportunity for more. You mentioned that the focus has changed from how many people play sport to actually the activity that they're doing and can they get activity yeah. into their lives. When you come in in the morning, Tim, and you said you enjoyed this job and it's you know, mm. a brilliant job, do some of the stats that then leap out really cause you concern? So here's, here's one, for example. Less than half of children yeah. are meeting the chief medical officer's guideline of an average one hour of sport or activity each day. Yeah. And then twice as many men take part in sport than women. Yes, and that there is clear inequalities uh, in, for example, um, among disabled people versus non-disabled people, among uh, various ethnic groups compared to the white British majority, most notably of all, and something that underpins all of that, social economic circumstance. So, you know, every statistic in our own active life survey shows us uh, that your social economic circumstance, uh, where you live and how much money you have, is the biggest determining factor of the likelihood of your being active. So I, it does concern me, but it's our job. So um, I'm concerned as a citizen and I'm concerned as a leader, but I'm excited by the fact that that's our challenge because uh, you know, if you want to put uh, societal problems into a professional context, professionally, that is absolutely why we're so relentlessly focused on trying to change that because those statistics do alarm. I think the children and young people one particularly recognizing how uh, not only is that a challenge for young people at this stage in their life but if we're not embedding a sort of habit, habit for life in our young people then we're only going to store up the challenge of inactivity uh, you know for future years so um, there we are living with the realization at the moment that we need to transform the habits of the nation in that way we are seeing some success by the way I mean the general level of activity um, in, in, in this cycle has gone up by over a million. So, you know, more people are being active. There are things that are starting to happen and work. But the big challenge is that level of people who are inactive, for whom there's almost none, uh, no activity in their lives at all, both at adult level and particularly among children and young people. Um, I appreciate that it's three men in a room talking yes. on this podcast, but one of your big successes at Sport England has been the... The, obviously the campaign This Girl Can, yeah. and you've got uh, released a new video uh, yeah. as well to, to promote that. What, how much of a game changer has that been? 
Um, I think it has, and you are right. So you know, we you know the the uh, the challenge of of acknowledging that is part of what this girl can has done is that um, what it has done uh, is demonstrated that perhaps actually the way that traditionally we have thought about sport and the way that we have thought about um, uh, the opportunity to be active has been quite a, a defined uh, proposition that has not worked for swathes of the population. It has served a lot of people, including me and uh, you and, you know, a lot of people very well. You know, made sport part of your life, enjoy it, find yourself passionate about it, and it fits. But there are a lot of people for whom that is not the case. And one of the issues that we identified five years ago when this girl can kicked off uh, was that for many women... Those were quite social in their in their nature. So it was about fear of judgment. It was about the welcome uh, um, that they felt they got in in a in a club or in a leisure centre or facility. It was about how that made them feel about themselves. Uh, a lack of you know uh, 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 genuinely the sorts of factors that perhaps we hadn't previously considered. So why I think the campaign has been quite groundbreaking has because it wasn't just about trying to uh, demonstrate to women and girls the benefit of being active. It was really trying to address those concerns and recognise the power of that in, in overcoming it. Um, it's also been, I think, I think This Girl Can is momentous for two reasons, and I'm fiercely proud of being able to sort of be part of it now, having in no way been responsible for its inception. Um, it's not only what it's doing as a campaign to uh, try and change behaviour, and, and, and we have seen a reduction in the gender gap, unquestionably. I mean, three million women have acknowledged a change in their behaviour uh, since the campaign started as a result. Um, but I think um, This Girl Can is also showing us something as well, and the role that Sport England can play is that I don't think going forward we are automatically going to just sit here and sort of try and transact our way to more activity where we you know, pinprick our investments in such a way that we think if we do this here, that'll return that, and we do this here. We have to be more uh, um, advocacy-led. We have to be more passionate about our view that we can facilitate and drive a whole sort of sense of what, it can, what can be achieved. And a campaign like this girl can, or in a similar vein last year with uh, targeting individuals with long-term health conditions we had a campaign called we're undefeatable which again was geared very much to showing how any activity is better than none and how possible that can be in everyday life and how self-determining often that can be so campaigning for us this girl can it's about absolutely breaking down the barriers that that uh, in this case women feel that are there for them to be active but it's also teaching sport england how we can think and behave differently. And talking of this girl, Canon, the latest campaign film, which has mm. come out just a couple of days before we record, you simply don't see tampon strings, do you, in promo videos or TV adverts? So when you sat down to conceive that Certainly video... Certainly not from public bodies, normally. No, no. you don't. Yeah. It, it's, it's a game changer. It's, yeah. it's brave. Would that be fair? Um, I like the fact that you think so. I think if we were to sit here going, aren't we brave, we'd be slightly self-congratulatory. Uh, what I think it is, un I think it is unflinching about what the issues are, uh, and I think that that was really important. Honest, isn't it? Yeah, and um, that is our job. So I, I felt intensely uh, comfortable with what people might have considered to be a brave decision to include imagery uh, like that, because that's the issue that we're facing. Um, and uh, I took also there's some there's a real power in this, and and I learned this a bit you know, as a non-disabled person as part of the Paralympic movement, 
you you can understand that your the views of others are those that matter not your own so i you know i was utterly persuaded that this was necessary and important um and clearly the reaction to the ad has has sort of confirmed that um but i i what i would like people to hear and think is that i suspect may have held it myself that historically sports councils generally in sport england have seen that have been seen to be rather cautious and risk averse and and rather you know sort of uh, public sector for want of a better way of putting it in an outlook we are very much a public sector body but i'd like the reaction to this advert to be more symptomatic of people's views of what we think our role is which is to try and help to develop an environment where everyone feels they have the right to be active and where more importantly we're not afraid of challenging the barriers that, to entry that exist we're talking to tim hollingsworth ceo of sport england this is great british bosses from anything but footy which brings us on nicely to your role with the, the british paralympic association mm. i described in the intro that you were part of a transformative period would mm. you agree that the perception of, of Paralympic sport during that time from kind of the build-up to London 2012 to where we are now has, has changed wholesale within the country? I would, but I would also always uh, counter that by making sure no one thinks that that's mission accomplished because there is an enormous amount of journeys still to go. But no, un- unquestionably so. And in fact, uh, and I know this is quite parochial, but... Um, uh, I was, uh, you know, obviously I'm a very busy man, but I was looking at Twitter just before you arrived, <laughs> and um, you know, one of the one of the uh, posts was uh, uh, an athlete, Paralympian Dan Greaves, uh, who'd posted some footage from his very first medal success in Athens in 2004 when he was a very young boy, and his hair was very much like Kevin Peterson's when we won the Ashes back in, you know, that sort of uh, badger streak yes. down the middle, and um, he. Um, and he was very proudly, you know, posting the footage of, of Athens and it looks great. But you're in this utterly empty stadium with absolutely nobody around. And you contrast to where we're going to be with Tokyo next year and where we are now with events. It's just one small example of how on, this, on the field of play things have changed utterly. Um, but I think also people's comfort and awareness and knowledge about Paralympic sport has been on a significant journey since 2012. Uh, and I do think that that is um, an exciting upward curve. Uh, and rather like the parallel that can be drawn with women's sport, I think there's a realisation jointly of both the power of the sport itself, you know, how much, uh, uh, you know, wonder there is in it and how much fun it is to both participate and watch but also more importantly how good it is coupled with the wider perception busting you know um, opportunity that it provides are we going to get to the point because the narrative around para events and the paralympics is often around words like inspirational or yeah that is the question you ask a paralympian you know about inspiring people are we going to get to the point where we stop making that difference between a power athlete and an able-bodied athlete for example do we need to get to that point um no not not totally um what we absolutely need to undercut continually is the belief that there is some fundamental difference in the individual achievement uh, while the times might be different or the the nature of the sport might be different. They still train yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly the same the, and everything the, else. The, we absolutely have to remove from the agenda this idea that in some way it's, it's well, first and foremost, you have to get over that. And I know all the, the, the athletes that I uh, worked alongside and with would say the worst thing was the 
was the sort of condescending, oh, aren't, you know, aren't they brave, you know, or or worse, you know, sort of like, well done, you know, all that sort of, so, because it's a brutal thing. The best thing that happened in London 2012 in many ways was when, if you remember, Jodie Con- Cundy lost it on the um, yeah, start line yeah. when he was disqualified because it was a brilliant image. Mean, I'm sure it wasn't at the time, actually, but in, 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 in retrospect, looking back on it, even Jodie might agree that it was the most brutal acknowledgement that he was an athlete that all he cared about was the training he'd done going into that event and he was being denied what would likely gold medal and yet for the world around it was like wow you know it was it was it was a fundamental realization for a lot of people that this wasn't secondary sport this was primary sport Um, but I wouldn't go all the way in terms of because there is a difference and one of the differences is, is that the challenge that, that the Paralympics brings to society in a way that I found really, really daily uh, present was the challenge to non-disabled people's views of what's possible. So I feel less, less that it was about the empowerment of disabled people in some ways, although it was, uh, and uh, the athletes being symptomatic of that, more that it genuinely challenge people's perceptions and that was the journey that we started probably more with 2012 and have continued since that people who had a lazy or ill-informed view of what was possible had that you know front and center challenged by 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 what the athletes achieved that should always still be there but when you're at the games for example all you care about or should care about is the quality of the sport the nature of the sport and hopefully the british success that follows was part of it getting the commercial side of the business right as well and as a ceo you know that's mm-hmm. you know sponsorship and money is, is crucial to what you do and actually having sponsors come in and support those para athletes how crucial was that do you think to to help change minds as well oh absolutely fundamental uh, as was channel four and the way that uh, a broadcaster actually and and, and I should say many other broadcasters, uh, not least the BBC with the way they treated it in news and radio. But, but, but when you also had a commercial broadcaster who realised the role that they could play above and beyond just showing the sport in terms of changing, challenging perceptions. Uh, but, the, but the commercial, looking back, the commercial uh, imperative for well, both Olympic and, and Paralympic sport uh, remains acute. Um, it does so for financial reasons. Uh, the vast majority, the BPA actually is a charity. Uh, it did receive some money via UK Sport for uh, you know its core games preparation, but you know 85, I think it was percent or so of its income was raised, fundraised either through commercial partnerships or fundraising. Um, and the commercial partners always uh, provided uh, three really, really critical roles um, and continue to do so. One is the underpinning resource. So, you know, the, the, the rights fee, the money, the sponsorship, uh, are paying the bills. Secondly, the uh, immensely powerful platform that they often provided for then telling stories and amplifying the power of, of um, Paralympic sports. So at, the, at, at their best, the partnerships did that brilliantly. If you think about the way that Sainsbury's managed to do that, how some of the BP adverts going into the last games uh, did that. And, and, and I could name any number of uh, sponsors, what Toyota are doing ahead of, uh, ahead of Tokyo now. And then thirdly, for a small organisation that, that was punching very much above its weight, it was incredibly valuable to have that professional and commercial expertise uh, on hand. So I found as chief executive um, that I, I got a lot from my engagement with the leaders of those 
multinational corporations because they're you know highly successful business people in their own right and they had a lot to give and a lot to offer in terms of advice and support uh, but the fundamental it's the same for the governing bodies um the health the health of our future will be determined by uh, the extent to which the first conversation is about resource you know when we get to a point where we know that the first conversation is around strategy and you know and as opposed to how much money have I got and how much you know how, how certain about it can I be and I know that for a lot of governing bodies that that's still a challenge and I know particularly you know the expense particularly of this cycle with Tokyo but generally the expectations now on both Team GB and Paralympics GB mean that that also becomes an you know a, a cyclical challenge to meet you mentioned some great brands there do you ever get to the point do you think we'll ever get to the point in this country where like in America they've now just said it's team USA for the Olympics and the Paralympics well I again this is a really interesting fact but I, I mean at the moment there are two reasons why uh, no I'm now in a different role and I'm now within Sport England so I could probably say I actually wouldn't want to see that happen um because uh, one of the things I would observe within the USA is while that might work from a commercial perspective, that doesn't necessarily give a huge amount of autonomy around the Paralympic side. And it actually loses some of the identity of the Paralympic team. So I would argue that in America, the American, uh, they has got some fantastic athletes, but they don't have any sort of sense of profile around Paralympic sport in the same way because it's absorbed within the, the huge machine that is... Uh, you know uh, the US uh, Olympic uh, movement Um, and more importantly um, you know I was talking to you about the distinct difference that that Paralympic sponsors could make you know if you have that unique relationship and that unique identity you can actually drive a different slightly different agenda I mean I'm a huge Olympics fan but I think the higher purpose of the Paralympics for me was a was slightly elevating from uh, you know from that mix so while while it might work there are lots of partnerships that are, I mean, you look across the piece now and I've gone so I can talk, you know, but Toyota, British Airways, you know, there are, and there are obviously a lot of partners who've got both Olympic and Paralympic rights. That's quite powerful. But I'm not sure it necessarily will serve the, uh, the Paralympic yeah, movement. Because the general the public just call it Team GB. Yes. And <laughs> there's a bigger issue. Yeah. Are you talking as an administrator? And if you were to go down onto that street, we're in a building that's yeah. got Sport England, UK Sport. There's a building around the corner that's got GB Snow Sport, Team GB, Para GB. Mm. The person on the street might go, well, surely they're all just the same thing or they're all doing the same thing. And, and when, it comes to, um, when it comes to the games, it, it is pretty unified, right? I think the big issue there is whether it's just Team GB or Team GB and Paralympics GB. Um, one of the reasons why I am... I like... I, I, I'll reflect on what you just said there, Michael. Am I talking as the administrator? I probably am, actually. I probably am. But I'm doing it for a very good reason, which is is that uh, I think the fierce determination to make the distinction around what the Paralympics was led to a separate brand. Apart from the fact Team GB is actually owned by the British Olympic Association, so it's up to them who who, who uses it or not. Um, where, where your challenge is absolutely right is the extent to which that dilutes the opportunity for revenue generation commercial partnership. Um, and I think there is a movement, and you're probably aware of this, there is a movement to try and tie a lot more of that together and to aggregate rights a lot better. And I think that's probably a good idea. Um, I should, I mean, by the way, I'm out of this now in that respect. I mean, I'm very interested and we're talking about it, but it's no longer my responsibility. 
So I should probably take a step back and go, do you know what? I can probably see what you mean a bit more. Well, I want to pick your brains then slightly on that because Michael mentioned quite a few overarching organisations. So are there, and I said this in the introductions, some of our governing bodies look after from grassroots all the way up to elite. Others just look after elite. Is it too confusing? Are there too many uh, organisations in British sport? Um, uh, Well, there there are a lot. Um, and I think it's what drives, I mean, you, you're right back at the start of this uh, conversation. You asked me about, you know, priorities and what I was trying to do differently. Or, or even I think you said my hands are never grabby, but, you know, get my, <laughs> my hands on, on things. One of the recognition points that I did have coming in was that um, the need to collaborate and the need to engage much more in sort of partnership working uh, is something that we absolutely had to prioritize and take forward. And I think that's true across the sporting landscape i think there are a lot of organizations and you could argue that one answer is to try and narrow that down and 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 to some degrees maybe but there are two reasons why it's very difficult one of them is beyond our pay grade which is the politics of devolution i mean everyone goes why are there four different sports councils or why are there four different uh governing bodies for athletics or you know well because we're devolved and that's a decision that was taken with not thinking, well, what will this do for sport? You know, <laughs> if you really want to simplify the, the sporting landscape, the first thing you should do is, is roll back devolution. And I don't think that's going to happen. So that is one of the living consequences that we have in terms of people who say, oh, can't we make it simpler? Is that, well, we have four different nations who are trying to join up as much as possible. And one of the successes, I think, that's come out of London is there is a good deal more coordination. Next week, I'm spending... Uh, the day with the chief execs of Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and UK sport. We do a lot of that now to try and make sure that we we join the dots as much as possible. But you can't go from there to merge because political devolution makes that impossible fact. Uh, so I think we need that realisation. And I think people who, who go to a quick assumption that we could have lots of fewer bodies have, have got to take the devolution point into into uh, respect. The only other point I would make is is that the... I, I think there's a there's a question to be asked for Sport England. There's a question to be asked across the sporting landscape as to whether, you know, we could look to consolidate some of the roles and responsibilities. Uh, sport is organised uh, in a sort of 20th century way. Uh, and I think we need to become a 21st century business. We are an analogue industry. We need to become a digital industry. We do need to... Uh, and I think I know what I mean by that, but please don't ask me more than one question. Um, but, you know, we do need to put the digital presence of being active and playing sport absolutely at the centre of what we do. That would argue for far less ter- territorial uh, involvement and far more uh, collaborative working and far more aggregating of information and data. And certainly one of the one of the imperatives for us, Sport England, and one of imperatives I would argue for us as an industry and a sector is that we need to open up the data in a way that makes it very easy for someone to find something for them online, if that's what they want to do. It is not at the moment. We are, it is, as we found out last year with the survey, it is twice as easy to book a takeaway pizza as it is a squash call. On a, you know, on, <laughs> that's the challenge. So where I think your question might come to more reality is as we reinvent what sport looks like for the 21st century and recognise that some of the old linear ways of doing it will need to just sort of become more broad is that looking ahead to the future then your biggest ambition when the time comes and you you walk out of here for the the last time 
is that what you want to look back on and say that's my legacy or is it a case of I want to make sure we've got the same level of playing fields that we've always had the childhood obesity hasn't got any worse Great Britain have a basketball team at the Olympics what would you like to sort of look back and think well I, I achieved well, my that. primary ambition is is that uh, uh, being uh, playing sport and being physically active is central to everyone's life um, and the benefits of that are, are recognized and that we have created uh, a sporting ecosystem and I think it is an ecosystem by the way and it sounds like just playing with words but the more you think about an ecosystem you recognize the dependencies that exist between all the different organizations whether it's a leisure operator a national governing body uh, you know a, a, a charitable body um, uh, the, the health sector schools everyone's trying fundamentally to work towards this agenda of getting people more active then it becomes more about how we can collaborate and work together but no my, my, my prime ambition will be that we've overcome the barriers to entry, that we've addressed some of the stubborn inequalities that fundamentally exist, that we've found ways to do that. In my own view, that's about a focus very much relentlessly on three Ps of purpose, people and place. You have to really demonstrate to people why being active is the right thing to do and that would benefit their lives. You have to have the people in place to support and make that happen, whether that's the coaching workforce, the administrating workforce, the volunteers, the clubs, the leisure operators, the local communities. And you fundamentally need to understand place. You need to recognise that national solutions have been good for some and exclusive of others, but everyone has their own sense of place, what makes sense for their life, you know, what facilities are around them, what opportunities are around them, and how can you adapt your, you know, the offer to, to suit that. So I'm, I'm, I, I, the secondary bit to that is, is that the 21st century version of sport will emerge. But my own under, un, unrelenting uh, hope is, is that my time at Sport England uh, brings to the fore that view that there are transformational benefits to people's lives through being active, that sport can be fundamentally part of that. Um, and that we've done everything we can do to address the barriers that exist to that at the moment. If the marketing people are listening, Just Eat could become Just Sport. Yeah. And that, exactly that kind yeah. of thing on the app. Um, very quickly to finish with, that's looking forward. What's the most proud thing looking back that you've achieved in, in your career as a, either CEO at, at PowerGB or at UK Sport or even wow. here? Well, it would be... I'm quite proud of things that have happened here in the last year, but that would be very self-serving probably to sort of, you know say that um i am just genuinely proud to have played a part in the period uh of change that uh people's perceptions of and and paralympic sport has undertaken uh since i joined the bpa incredibly fortuitously um my whole career has been fortuitous um you know i had i was when i joined uk sport my chair was sue campbell my my chief executive was john Steele. the director of performance was liz nickel uh, the the sort of guru head of performance was Peter Keane. You know, Andy Parkinson was running the anti-doping side of it. I had some amazing colleagues to to engage with and learn from and work with. But joining in 2011, the Paralympic movement just before London and seeing it through to what was essentially the period just after the Pyeongchang Winter Games, uh, I if I can if I can have a sort of pride in general involvement, it's certainly that. Uh, more specifically. Uh, the one gold medal that we won on the last day in Pyeongchang, which hit our medal target for Pyeongchang, uh, but rather more personally, uh, it ticked over to be the 100th gold medal that was won by Paralympics GB at Summer and Winter Games while I was, um, while I was chief executive. I'm pretty proud of that. Tim Hollingsworth, CEO of Sport England, thank you very much for talking to great British bosses from anything but footy. Thank you both for the opportunity.
Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.